groups and the financial impacts on our country. Scott Ritter, the former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq, has a forthcoming book about arms control policy. Michael Voluva will also give a presentation on Iran from his new book. This is a benefit for the Mount Diablo Peace and Justice Center, 55 Eckley Lane, Walnut Creek. There's more information at 925-933-7850 or online at mtdpc.org. Suggested donation, this event is wheelchair accessible. This event is co-sponsored by KPFA. KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday. Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throne. Today is December the 1st. Oops, jingle bells. December 2009. Here it comes again. <laughs> All good best wishes of the season. Yes. I don't mind Christmas. I feel no worse the Christmas season than any other time of the year after all. Uh, sometimes... I get free goodies and cookies. Uh, we have the holiday crafts fair coming up. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it this year, although I'm not sure. I think not, but possibly next year. I think by next year, it is my fervent hope that I will have a new book to offer. Uh, I am ashamed to come to the fair with um, books that... Uh, <laughs> are not au courant, you know. I don't know what that's all about. People expect you to be, uh, what is that, fruitful all the time. I I think, let's see, this year Adam David Miller will be doing the book table. Possibly I can get him to uh, share some of my stuff. But if anyone is interested, uh, you can always write to me here at Keep Your Faith. I have available four titles. And, of course, oh, so many tapes that I could use them for landfill. Uh, the books, I have a movie book, and I have a memoir, and I have a collection of short fictions, and then I have a big book of essays. Got an award for that one in long ago, 1988. That's, golly, golly, that's 20 years ago. Uh was um, all about film and feminism, mostly about all my favorite literary saints. Well, not all, actually. There's no William Blake. <laughs> Maybe I can get around to William Blake next time. Anyway, I hope that you had 
a lovely holiday and that you did not uh, indulge too much. I used to be a good esthete on Thanksgiving, but frankly, I I have lost my um, uh, my taste for starvation. I I've thought about it a lot. I brought with me today a book, a, a essay called "A Good Cook." And uh, I've been carrying it around with me for weeks. It's it's about a woman in North Korea and how she subsists on, uh, well, I guess it's food. Uh, and I thought I would share it with you today in case in case you need to um, uh, go on a fast for a few days, maybe thinking about the rest of the world. I, I don't know. I still laugh at the... Uh, the uh, hideous jokes that were made when I was a child. You know, I was supposed to eat what was on my plate because, of course, our children were starving uh, in the developing world. And in order to, uh, yes, uh, solve the problem of hunger in the world, I had to finish the mashed potatoes, which, of course, ruined my life. (laughs) Yes, weight is such a funny thing. Anyway, uh, last night, I was watching uh, a Tony Kirshner and some other playwrights uh, on uh, Sundance Channel. They were uh, studying the play Mother Courage, the woman who um, does everything she can to pull through, to feed her children, to avoid starvation. And, of course, everything she does ultimately leads to their destruction. Um that's a play that's bothered me all my life. It's the masterpiece by Berthold Brecht. And I think you probably can still uh, get it on Sundance if you have uh, on-demand TV sets. Uh, they used bits of the 1969 production with, oh, the wonderful one with Meryl Streep. Uh, I love it. They show you bits and pieces of Meryl Streep acting Mother Courage on stage and then we see the beautiful actress Meryl Streep in black and white telling us why Mother Courage is uh, such a uh, brilliant play and such a masterpiece so we can see that she's still Meryl Streep and you know this great beauty interesting Um, she talks about uh, The energy, yes. The energy of the young revolutionary, yes. The worst thing, just about the worst thing she does. Well, the way I read the play. Just about the worst thing Mother Courage does is to crush the enthusiasm, the energy of the young revolutionary with her pessimism. I've thought about this for years and I have often wondered if maybe uh, my own... Well, I won't say cynicism, let's say skepticism, is not kind of a wet blanket at times. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I haven't been a barricades broad for a number of years, and uh, the ultimate ambiguity of all these efforts, uh, I think at my age, I always have questions in my mind. I'm like... uh, the old woman in, I forget, it's some Irish play, yes, me, uh, it's a movie. Uh, the old woman talking to the young girl saying, you know, no, no, uh, you know, um, take your life, have your family and, and all the good things. Uh, don't rush out and get yourself killed. Anyway, uh, 
<laughs> Some people, of course, have no choice. The uh, Sundance thing, let's see, it's about an hour and a half. It's called In Search of Bertolt Brecht. And it goes through the HUAC stories. Um, we get some material from the daughter, Barbara Brecht. She would be exactly my age. Yes, and uh, she says that uh, no matter how awful things were back there in 1933 with her parents running from the Nazis, she always felt uh, loved and safe and that kind of thing. Uh, they show you uh, Bertolt Brecht and his actress wife fleeing through Denmark to Finland to Moscow to Vladivostok, Manila, finally winding up in Los Angeles in July of 1941. Uh, he left this country again after the um, House on American Activities uh, <laughs> Committee went for his... Yes, behind there's a very funny scene in this uh, production in search of Bertolt Brecht, which shows you Brecht um, in front of the Congressional Committee. And uh, I thought of Bob Dylan's joke, if I didn't like you, I'd put you on. He pretends that his English is poor, which, of course, it was not. Uh, and um, uh, he actually, they finally begin to get it. Uh he does make fun of them. Uh, in any case, Brecht wound up finally in East Berlin. I like to use his three-penny opera here for my theme song. I have always been uh, addicted to the three-penny opera. I must remember to put it on the list, yes, for my memorial. Yes, play play Bertolt Brecht's three-penny opera, start to finish. Uh the daughter, Barbara Brecht, says that when she came to L.A. in 1941, they called her, in school, the children were cruel, they called her a Jew and then they called her a Nazi. You can't win for losing kids. Anyway, Tony Kirshner is wonderful in this production. He He seems to understand Mother Courage better than many of our young playwrights uh you know how it is these days we seem to want a white hat or a black hat uh mother courage is of course um the life force but even her struggle for survival is what tends to um what is the word uh yes she <laughs> she's she's cruel uh in the end, uh, her very determination is what wipes everything out. I was looking here. Oh, well, now I've lost it. Uh, I had some notes from the only production that I ever did, which was a workshop production, and it was a lot of fun, but even I didn't quite understand the play. Meryl Streep laughed, and she said, there's this scene, you know, when she's there storming the barricades and persuading everyone to fight and then she realizes that of course if she does that <laughs> it will just create a worse disaster we all know we all know the uh, ambiguities uh, in any case I want to read you just a little bit of this article called The Good Cook it's a battle against famine in North Korea and it's my pick for the uh, 
the mother courage figure of our time. <laughs> this this woman, I think, what is it? She gets she gets points for endurance. Uh, they use a different name. The article is by Barbara Demick, D-E-M-I-C-K. It's in a New Yorker. Uh, the copy is November the 2nd. November 2, New Yorker, called The Good Cook, A Battle Against Famine in North Korea. This is the kind of thing that um, when I read it, I I cannot imagine such a life. And I cannot imagine doing anything except... Um, you know, uh, giving up and cutting your throat. <laughs> anyway, they call her Mrs. Song, uh, a model citizen of North Korea. I lived only for the fatherland, she said. I never had a thought otherwise. Her enthusiasm made her sound like the heroine of a propaganda film. She looked the part, too. A face plump as a dumpling. She appeared well-fed even when she wasn't. A bow-shaped mouth which made her seem happy even when sad. She raised four children while working ten-hour shifts six days a week. See, her job's at a daycare center at the Chosun Clothing Factory uh, in the coastal city of uh Chongjin in North Hamgyong province. Okay. An estimated 20% of North Korean men were in the armed services. Uh, we're back here in, uh, <laughs> we're back here a generation ago. Uh, women were needed to keep the factories going. Mrs. Song often went to work with a baby strapped to her back and one or two other children. Dragging along, kids spent their days in the daycare center. After work, Mrs. Song participated in several hours of ideological training in the factory's auditorium. Friday night, she stayed late for self-criticism. Uh, her colleagues would reveal anything they thought they had done wrong. Mrs. Song usually said she feared she wasn't working hard enough. She was head of her neighborhood group when she wasn't at the factory. She was responsible for assigning communal chores, reporting activity that was inconsistent with North Korean doctrine. The author of this article goes on to say, I first met Mrs. Song, whose name has been changed, uh, in 2004. At that time, she was 59 years old. She had been living in Seoul, South Korea for two years. She'd been brought out of North Korea by her oldest daughter, Ok Hee, who had for years expressed open dislike for the regime and had in March of 2002 managed to defect to South Korea. Mrs. Song told me she had left North Korea only for her daughter and that she remained a true believer until the day she left. Even after three members of her family died of starvation her husband, her mother-in-law, and her 25-year-old son. Mrs. Song believed that North Korea was the greatest nation on earth. She said, I thought it was my fault that I couldn't provide for them. It never occurred to me that the government was at fault. That's a quote. It never occurred to me that the government was at fault. 
Only later did she realize that, quote, it was the kind and good-hearted people who did what they were told. They were the first to die. Yes, the meek shall inherit the earth, folks. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Song used to go twice a month to food distribution center near her apartment. Two plastic shopping bags stood in line outside an unmarked storefront. Uh, everybody had assigned days. Mrs. Songs were the third and the 18th, often a wait of several hours. Inside, there was a small, unheated room, white concrete walls, a cheerless woman sitting behind a table covered with ledger books. Mrs. Song handed over her ration book, a small sum of money, and tickets from the garment factory, certifying that she had fulfilled her work duty. The clerk would then calculate her entitlements. <clears throat> 700 grams each per day for her and her husband. Her husband, Shangbo, was a journalist working for the North uh, Hamjong radio station. 300 grams for her mother-in-law, retired people. Got less food, yes. 400 for each school-aged child living at home. If anybody in the family was away from home, Mrs. Song would tell the clerk and the corresponding amount of rations was deducted. The clerk would then stamp receipts in triplicate, one of which she'd give to Mrs. Song. At the back of the warehouse where vats of rice, corn, barley, and flour were stored. Another clerk weighed out the rations, put them in the plastic bags. Cabbage, yes. <laughs> Cabbage. Okay, that was distributed in the autumn. It's a... Uh, a uh, special dish, spicy preserved cabbage. They make kimchi. It's a Korean national dish. Lasts all winter. Mrs. Song says each family got 70 kilograms, that's 154 pounds of cabbage per adult, and 50 kilograms per child. Okay, that's 100 pounds, 110 pounds. For her family, this came to 410 kilos. She would spend up to a week preparing the kimchi. That's the spicy dish. Cabbage was pickled with salt, spiced with red pepper, sometimes with bean paste or baby shrimp, then stored in tall earthenware jars. Her husband helped her carry the jars down to the basement of a warehouse next to the apartment building. Each family had a storage bin. Tradition was to bury the kimchi pots in the garden so that they would stay cold but would not freeze. In the warehouse basement, Mrs. Song uh, simply packed dirt around the jars and put them in the storage bin, which they padlocked. Thieves were common. <laughs> Mrs. Song had three daughters. She used to boast that her kimchi was the best in the neighborhood. She enjoyed cooking almost as much as her husband enjoyed eating. Both of them fancied themselves a gourmet. Her repertoire was naturally limited. North Koreans had no exposure to foreign cuisine. <laughs> but North Korean cooks are creative. 
I thought of that while I was eating my Thanksgiving dinner over in Richmond at the Hotel Mac. I demanded more giblet gravy. They brought it to me in a, uh, uh, a, a gravy boat. Uh, most of the guests seemed to be too busy talking. I was busy eating. I'm serious about food. If you can get good giblet gravy uh, here in America, you should... You should gobble it up. I, uh, I'm surprised at how people overlook such things. Uh, everyone seems to care more about the, uh, what you call it, uh, the desserts and things. I don't care a, a hoop for that. Uh, anyway, the article goes on to explain that if there's anything fresh, uh, or seasonal, it can be mixed with rice, barley, or corn, spiced with red bean paste or chilies. Uh, the signature dish is cold buckwheat noodles served in a broth with myriad regional variations that include uh, sometimes hard-boiled eggs, cucumbers, or pears. If she was busy, Mrs. Song bought noodles from a shop. If not, she made them herself. Uh, and this piece goes on to describe the limited ingredients that you got from the public distribution system uh, the occasional batter fried vegetables light and crisp for her husband's birthday she turned rice into a sweet glutinous cake and she also made her own corn liquor Looking back many years later, Mrs. Song couldn't pinpoint when her rations faded away. 1989, was it? 1990, 1991. She started waiting in line earlier, sometimes as early as 1 a.m. When the clerks handed her shopping bags back, they were lighter. She didn't need to peek inside to confirm her disappointment. Rice disappeared first. Cooking oil had always been only sporadically available. Now it was never in the bag. State-supplied cabbage was no longer delivered. There was no fuel for the trucks. Mrs. Song had to walk to a nearby farm, pick the cabbage, cart it home in a wheelbarrow. She didn't complain. She told me later, if I made a fuss, they would have just come and taken me away. Subsidized food was supposed to be a crowning achievement of the North Korean system. Echoing the Republican Party's mantra during Herbert Hoover's 1928 presidential campaign, you remember, uh, a chicken in every pot. North Korea's founder, Kim Il-sung, promised to feed the North Korean population with rice. Coining the slogan, rice is socialism, back in the 1950s. Rice, especially white rice, had always been the favored food of Koreans, but uh, North Korea is too cold and too mountainous to produce enough of it to sustain the population, so it remained a luxury. However, the public distribution system introduced in the Communist North shortly after the Korean Peninsula was divided in 1945 did supply a mixture of grains in amounts that were carefully allotted in accordance with rank and work status. On national holidays, uh, such as Kim family birthdays, pork 
or dried fish might be distributed. Kim Il-sung and his son, Kim Jong-il, who by the 1980s was increasingly assuming his father's duties, offered on-the-spot guidance to address the country's problems. <laughs> Father and son were experts in everything from geology to farming. <laughs> I would note here, my footnote here, it says, the world won't be the same without Big Daddy, or else perhaps it will. Hmm. Anyway, one day... Uh, Kim Jong-il decreed that the country should switch from rice to potatoes as its primary staple food. We have started to see the potato revolution as an ideological revolution, reported the official newspaper. <laughs> the next day, he would decide that the country should build ostrich farms. Despite... Its rhetoric about self-sufficiency, North Korea was dependent on the generosity of its neighbors. Uh, and there's a couple of pages here on all the uh, goods sold to Korea at preferential uh, prices, subsidized fuel, oil, rice, fertilizer, pharmaceuticals, industrial equipment, trucks, cars, hospital equipment came from Czechoslovakia, Subway carriages arrived from East Germany. Kim Il-sung skillfully played the Soviet Union and China against each other, using their rivalry to extract as much aid as possible. <laughs> Stalin sent an armored limousine. Mao sent a train carriage. But by the early 1990s, the Russians had grown impatient with North Korea's failure to repay its creditors an estimated $10 billion in loans. Okay, things get worse, things get tighter. A feedback loop of diminishing productivity was set in motion. Uh, North Korea is the last place on Earth where virtually all staple foods are grown on collective farms. Um, their population is 20... 24 million, right. Uh, the agricultural techniques developed to boost production relied on electrically powered irrigation systems and on chemical fertilizers and pesticides produced at factories that had been closed owing to a lack of fuel and raw materials. Anyway, while the people began to starve, they naturally um, didn't have the energy to work. Things went from bad to worse. The farmers uh, actually neglected the collective fields for private kitchen gardens, you know. Better not be caught doing something like that. So enduring hunger became part of one's patriotic duty. Posters went up in the capital, touting a new slogan. Let's eat two meals a day. Oh, I love it. I think of our last uh, disaster. You remember? When uh, George W. Bush told us that we should go shopping, yes, we should spend more, we should boost up, we should uh, consume more. Uh, so interesting. Um, the people in North Korea were told that the government was stockpiling food to feed the uh, South Korean masses 
on the blessed day of reunification. Yes, indeed, that sounds tricky, yes. The television ran a documentary about a man whose stomach burst, it was claimed, from eating too much rice. <laughs> the foreign press began reporting on North Korea's food shortages in the early 1990s. And I have to stop here. Check this out. Uh, I'm so glad I didn't get to the awful parts. I... I didn't really want to read it because it's just too cruel right after Thanksgiving. Uh, the thought of starving quietly at home uh, and trying to make meals out of rotten cabbage. Uh, check out this article if you're a school teacher or if you wish to look at the grimmer side of life. Yes, those in darkness. Uh, this is called The Good Cook. It's about a woman in North Korea who is fortunately now living in South Korea and eating a decent meal every day. This has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air at 8.20 Thursday morning. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. This month, Golden Thread Productions presents Reorient 2009, The First Ten Years, a festival of short plays exploring the Middle East. This one-of-a-kind festival turns the Bay Area into a mecca for innovative, spirited, and thought-provoking theater from around the world, providing a rare opportunity for artists and audiences alike to engage deeply and directly with the Middle East in a creative and supportive setting that displaces misinformation and encourages understanding. This year, Golden Thread celebrates the festival's 10th anniversary by featuring a world premiere by MacArthur Genius Award winner Naomi Wallace as well as a retrospective of plays from the festival's past 10 years. The festival runs through to December 13th at the Thick House in San Francisco. Please visit